You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. All right, now it's the right time. Good morning. Hey, if you guys would do me a huge favor and just find your seats quickly, I just want to give you the heads up right now. We're really in for a lot this morning. This is, this is a big passage we're going to be looking at, and it's going to be long, so I would just ask you in advance for grace and patience. Um, you know, I would have liked to have make it shorter, but, uh, you know, life happened this week, and things got in the way. So um, I will try and move as quickly as I can to explain a very complicated passage. You know, often when, when preachers will begin a sermon like this, they'll do something like a story or a joke or something lighthearted, and uh, frankly, that's just not where I'm at. This morning, uh, my heart is not light. This morning, my heart is heavy. Uh, I spent the last few days with the Goodfellow family who are mourning uh, Katie and Louise and Joel and Matthew grieving the loss of their mom, and Paul, the loss of his wife to cancer. James writes at the beginning of this letter, consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and for them and for others, even in this room, that is not just good advice, and it's not just a religious platitude. It is a very real and very immediate struggle, and it is the fight of their lives, and so I'm just, I'm really burdened this morning with that reality that when we open God's Word, we are not dealing with hypotheticals, and so if you would, um, just, I'd like to just start uh, and pray for our time together. Uh, Lord, I, uh, I come before you this morning as, as someone who is in need. I need your help. I'm tired and, and I need energy to deliver this message and I need focus and I need help to just effectively explain this, this very difficult passage in James and I don't take that responsibility lightly, so I just pray this morning that you would help me as only you can and I pray that you would help us all to be doers of this word and not hearers only. And I ask that you would comfort Katie and Louise and Joel and Matthew and Paul and the rest of their family and everyone who knew Caroline and who misses her greatly this morning. I pray that their faith would not fail. I pray that you would bring them peace. I pray that you would bring about your good purpose in the midst of their, uh, their unspeakable pain. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14, one of the most controversial passages in the entire Bible, maybe the most controversial. James writes, starting in verse 14, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. 
The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness." And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now Christians have argued about the meaning of this passage for hundreds and hundreds of years. Martin Luther, who kicked off the Protestant Reformation, hated the book of James, largely because of this passage. He wrote, St. James's epistle letter, his letter is really an epistle of straw compared to these others. He meant those written by Paul and Peter. For it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. So Martin Luther read through the book of James, and he noticed that James is almost like exclusively concerned with the way that our faith makes itself active in our lives. He's almost exclusively concerned with the way we act out our belief. And so James's words sounded so much to Luther like the works righteousness theology, which had overtaken the medieval church, that he read through the book and he just rejected it out of hand. He told his students, throw the epistle of James out the door of this school, for it doesn't amount to much. And the controversy here in this passage really has two aspects. The first is that it really seems like James is in conflict with the Apostle Paul. Romans 3.28, here's Paul speaking, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Again, Paul in Galatians 2.16 and following, Knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by works of the law no flesh will be justified. And then here's James in our passage this morning. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So James seems to be saying literally the exact opposite thing that Paul is saying. And the other aspect of this controversy is that if James is saying that, then what he's suggesting is that good works or morality are somehow constituent to eternal salvation. That's clear in in verse 14. So right up front, before we dig in, I want to mention just three common interpretations of this passage, and then I'll give you my interpretation, and if you disagree with me, you can email jake at midtownaustin.org and have it out with him or you can just talk to me later. The, the first common interpretation is, is what I'll call the academic view. The academic view. James is, the academic view is that James is correcting Paul's theology, that James is writing after Paul, and he's correcting Paul. And I don't think this is correct. And the reason I don't think it's correct is because in Galatians 2, Paul explicitly says that before he started his public ministry, he met with Peter and James and John to make sure that they were all on the same page theologically. So I don't think James and Paul are in conflict, and I'll prove this to you as we work through the passage. The second common interpretation is what I'll call the Roman Catholic or the Arminian view, 
And this is, or you could call it the good works view. And this is the view that we do need good works to get into heaven. So salvation is accomplished by both faith and works together. And I think we can very easily reject this uh, when we consider the rest of Scripture. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, a lot of you are familiar with that verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works. It doesn't come after on the backside of works. Why? So that no one may boast. So I think we can also reject that view. But there's this third common interpretation that I really take issue with and that I want to sort of work against this morning, and it's this. It's what I'll call the traditional view or the Reformed view. And if the Roman Catholic or the Arminian view is that we need good works to get into heaven, the traditional or the Reformed view is that we need good faith to get into heaven. In other words, we're saved by faith alone, but if your faith doesn't produce a lifestyle of good works, then you don't have saving faith. You have something else. You're not really a believer. You're a make-believer. It's not enough for you to just say a prayer or walk an aisle or sign a card. You have to actually reflect that Jesus is Lord in your lifestyle or your faith is no good. And so a consistent lifestyle of good works, according to this view, is a necessary evidence of legitimate saving faith. Now, this is what I was taught in my theology classes at the university I attended. This is the view that many popular speakers and, and authors and interpreters promote, especially those who have been influenced by Reformed or, or Calvinistic theology, probably people whose books you read and probably people whose sermon podcasts you listen to hold this view, and I respect a lot of those people greatly, and I won't name them, uh, but they're wrong. They're wrong on James 2, and I'll explain why. I have a few problems right off the bat with that view that good works are a necessary evidence of salvation. The first question I would have is, well, okay, well, how good is good enough, right? Like, how good of a good work lifestyle do I have to have then to prove that I'm really in? Because I know Christians who have blown it big time, right? And so do you. And then the second question I have is like, well, how bad do I have to blow it then to prove with, with some certainty that I'm not really in and that my faith really isn't sufficient? And then theologically, I have another issue with this because it reduces the free gift of salvation to a bribe. If the good works view that works play a part in salvation, uh, you know, if you can earn salvation with your good works, then what is salvation in that sense? It's a wage. It's something you get paid for what you did. In this view, the traditional view, salvation is a bribe. It's a gift, but there's strings attached, right? So, uh, yeah, God will save you, but, but you have to hold up your end of the bargain. Is that what the Bible teaches? We will see. We will see. I think it's bad theology. And the other problem is that it leads to bad practice because then when people have this view that good works are this necessary evidence of salvation, that the lifestyle of morality is how you know, then what happens with Christians? Like we just all turn into fruit inspectors, like running around and judging people and trying to figure out based on their life, looking on the outward appearance only, are they in or are they out? That's not good for anybody. So one of my objectives this morning is to hopefully offer a very strong rejoinder to this specific interpretation, which is so pervasive and so problematic. And before we dig into the passage, I just want to remind us this morning uh, that when, when we open God's Word to study it, our, our goal is not simply to understand it. Our goal should be to obey it. 
Our goal should be to obey it. Understanding the Bible doesn't do anyone any good unless you apply what you learn. So I'll explain the passage to help you grasp the meaning, but I also want to make sure that we don't miss the message in the midst of, of the controversy and trying to work this out. And I'll need your help. Uh, this, it will require your attention. It will require your patience. It will require that you be willing to just really engage with your mind this morning. So I hope you're with me. Um, let's dig into the passage. And remember, the message of James, the message of James is this, that trials and suffering and pain in this life are inevitable. They are sure to come. It's unavoidable. It's inevitable, but it's also profitable if we face it in the right way. And everything that James writes in this letter serves the purpose of that message. So with that in mind, let's look at verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Now, right away, I see four words or phrases that stick out to me as interpretive keys in this passage. It's the words brethren, works, the phrase that faith, and then the word save. We'll talk about each. First, brethren. Uh, the New International Version says brothers and sisters. And, and why is this important, the word brethren? It's important because it reminds us of James's audience. It reminds us who he's writing to. It reminds us who his readers are and what their background is. They're believers. They're Christians. They're not non-Christians uh, who are curious about what it means to be a Christian or how to become a Christian. They have expressed faith, and James recognizes that faith by calling them brothers and sisters. That's important. The second word is works. What does James mean when he says works? Is, does he mean a general lifestyle of good works or a general lifestyle of morality, or is he referring to specific deeds and actions? That question will be answered as we continue. And then the phrase, that faith. The Greek phrase that's translated uh, in the New American Standard that I'm using this morning, that faith, it includes an article, ha, and a noun, pistis, ha, pistis. Now, every time this phrase occurs in the book of James, besides right here in verse 14, the article is either included, and then the phrase is translated, the faith, or the article is left untranslated, and it's simply rendered faith. This is the only instance in which translators have decided to translate this phrase, ha pistis, as that faith. And different English translations do that, this differently. The New American Standard, the English Standard Version, they say that faith. King James Version says faith. Revised Standard and Holman Christian Standard say his faith. The New International Version says such faith. And the New Living Translation says that kind of faith, which is like heavy on the interpretation. So it's important to do work like this when we're trying to discern the meaning of a passage because translators are forced in every circumstance to make interpretive decisions when they're moving between the Greek or the Hebrew language and trying to pull that into English. And so because the translators have to make interpretive decisions, their interpretive decisions will turn around and shape your interpretive decisions. And this is why we study our Bibles, people. So that's a, that, that faith. And then the last one, save. Now, whenever you encounter the word save in your Bible, you have to ask a question right off the bat. Saved from what? Saved from what? Because you might assume uh, that when you see the word save in the Bible, it means saved from hell. Right? It means that in other places. That's the way we use it in like our Christianese language that we all speak, right? Like, oh, he got saved. What do we mean? 
I mean, he put his faith in Christ. He, he got saved from hell. And it means that in other places in the Bible. Titus 3.5, he saved us, not because of righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. Amen to that. Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But we know that in the English language, the same word can have different meanings depending on the context, right? I mean, the word trunk means different things if you're standing in a forest or if you're standing in a zoo or if you're standing in a parking lot or if you're standing in an attic. And it's the same way in the Greek language as well. The word sozo, which is translated save in verse 14, is used in the New Testament to refer to all different kinds of saving. It can mean uh, being saved from hell, but it could also mean being saved from disease. And it's often translated healed or made well. It can, be, it can mean uh, being saved from physical death or from some kind of peril or danger. And James uses this word sozo four other times in the letter, and none of his other uses refer to salvation from hell. And it's also worth noting that for a first century reader uh, of this letter, deliverance from hell would have actually been the least likely interpretation of the word salvation. There are 812 usages of the various Hebrew words which mean salvation in the Old Testament, and only 58 of them out of 812 refer to salvation from hell. So again, remember who James's readers are. They're believers. They don't need to be told how to be saved from hell. That's already been taken care of. And then furthermore, if James were talking here about salvation from heaven and hell, it would actually represent a digression in the flow of, uh, of his point. Because in the verses immediately before the verses we're looking at this morning, James is correcting his readers uh, because they dishonor the poor. So it doesn't make any sense for him to suddenly take a break from that to provide a lesson on how to make sure you go to heaven when you die. So this is why I think that the, the Reformed, the traditional interpretation of this passage is faulty. James is not even talking about heaven and hell in this passage. And so to try and lay that debate on top of this passage is actually to miss James's point entirely. So what does James mean then when he asks this question, can that faith save him? Remember the purpose of the letter? It's about how you persevere in following Jesus in the, in the middle of suffering and trials in your life or, or persecution. That was their main trial, his readers. I think James is making the point that obedience to God is constituent to perseverance. Not that obedience to God is constituent to eternal salvation. Workless faith does not preserve people through trials, and through suffering. Consider uh, uh, Luke 16, 46 and following. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? He says, A person who hears my words and puts them into practice is like a man who built a house on, on the foundation of the rock. And when the storms came, the wind and the rain, the house stood firm. But here's what the person's like who hears my words and does not put them into practice. He's like a foolish builder who built his house on a foundation of sand. And when the wind and the storms and the rain came, the ruin of that house was great when it fell. So Jesus provides in Luke 6 and in Matthew 7 a thematic precedent for an interpretation of James 2.14, which concludes that James is teaching that faith accompanied by works can save or preserve or deliver a believer in the midst of trials and even from physical death, but that faith without works 
provides a false sense of security. Faith without works provides a false sense of security. Okay, ready to move on to the next verse? All right, 15 through 17. If a brother or sister, remember in James, brother or sister means fellow believer, okay? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. And so here we have the next interpretive keyword in the passage. It's the word dead in verse 17. Faith without works is dead, James says. So what does he mean? There are many interpreters, for example, those who take the traditional view, uh, who would say that the word dead actually means something like illegitimate or false or insufficient. My theology professors in college used to say this, that, oh, we're saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone, meaning that it's always accompanied by this lifestyle of consistent good work. That's the traditional view. Many people who I respect hold that view. Maybe many of you hold that view. I don't hold that view. I think that view comes from flawed interpretation. So in the Greek, the, the word dead is nekros. It means dead. It doesn't mean non-existent. It doesn't mean insufficient. It doesn't mean illegitimate. It means dead. What does it mean when something is dead? It means it used to be alive, and now it's not. So let's say power goes out in your house. You go get the flashlight. You probably you would just pull out your phone, but just for the sake of the, you know. You go, you get the flashlight, you hit the switch, nothing happens. You open it up, there's batteries in there, but it doesn't work. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, that the power goes out and you have a flashlight, but it doesn't work? Can that flashlight help you? No. No. It's not that the batteries aren't, don't exist. It's not that they aren't in there. It's just that they're dead. They're inoperative. That's James's big point here. A workless faith is a, a worthless faith. It's a useless faith. It doesn't do anyone any good. It doesn't do you any good. It doesn't do your neighbor any good either. Let's look back now at 15 and 16. This person who James is describing in 15 and 16, they have the right idea, right? They don't have bad faith, right? It's not like their neighbor comes to them and, and is in need and they say, well, you know, I hope you stay naked and hungry. But they're not saying that. They're saying, go in peace. Be warned. Be filled. I really hope you get what you need. There's sympathy there. But does that sympathy help the person in need? No. No. It doesn't actually do them any good. And I actually don't think that this interaction that James describes in 15 and 16 is like an arbitrary illustration. I mean, he's already corrected them uh, because of the way that they treat poor people in their church. They show favoritism toward the rich. And so I think this is actually very specific application for his readers. But James' main point here is not, if you don't provide for the poor, your faith is worthless. That's just one specific application of a much broader principle. And so if you read this and you're like, aha, I am fantastic at taking care of the poor. I carry power bars in my car. I give them out to panhandlers. I volunteer with mobile loaves and fishes. I help my, my friend make rent last month. Now, I'm, I'm great at caring for the poor, providing for the poor. You're still not off the hook because that's just one specific application of this very broad principle. Verse 18, someone may well say, 
You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without the works. I'll show you my faith by my works. And if you look here, you can see there's quotation marks in this passage, right? Most of your Bibles will put the quotation marks after the first phrase. You have faith and I have works, end of quotation marks. I think that's probably actually where they belong. Most scholars uh, would place them there. And what James is doing here is he's, he's anticipating an objector. He's made the point already uh, that faith must be expressed through works in order to do anyone any good. And he imagines that someone might say, well, you have faith and I have works, right? Like in other words, the, the two don't necessarily have to go together. There's faith people. And there's works people. So there are people who are like, they're theologically minded, they're more cerebral, maybe they're INTPs, or they're like Enneagram Fives, and, uh, and they're not necessarily great with people, uh, but they're brilliant, and they're insightful, and isn't that enough? Like, isn't that enough to be that kind of person? And then on the other side, like, what about more justice-oriented people, more action-oriented people who are really into, like, deeds of charity, okay? They're ENFP, or they're an Enneagram 1, or, like, maybe an 8, and they don't bother with getting bogged down in the details, arguing about theology. It's just so boring. It's all about what you do anyway that makes the difference. And James is here is that his point here is that you need both. You need both. You need right perspective and right practice. The two have to go together. He emphasizes this further in the next two verses. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. So that's good faith, right belief in a monotheistic God. He's actually referring to the, the Shema in Deuteronomy. I don't have time to explain the Shema. I'm just going to keep moving. <laughs> you believe that God is one. You have good faith. You have the good theology. He says you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize you foolish fellow, that faith that works is useless. Useless. So James says to this hypothetical objector, you believe that God is one, you do well. You've got the faith part down. And what's the deal with the demons? The, the demons have great theology. They have great theology. As far as understanding God, oh, they get God. The demons know more about God than you. They've seen him. They've beheld his glory firsthand. They have experienced him. What's their problem? They don't act in accordance with what they know to be true about God. And why do they shudder? Well, it's because they know that judgment is coming. Because even though they know the right things about God, they don't act in accordance with what they know to be true. They rebel against God. Now, the next six verses constitute one big illustration. I think there's something just so incredibly profound about what James is doing with with. Uh, these illustrations at the end of our passage this morning. So, so pay close attention. If I've lost you, just come on back. Uh, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working along with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So you remember the story of Abraham? He and his wife, they wanted a son so bad. Abraham had no heir. So God promised Abraham that he would give Abraham a son, and Abraham believed God. He believed that promise. He trusted God. He had faith in God, and God counted Abraham righteous on the basis of that faith. And then what? Genesis 22, God gave Abraham an instruction, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain 
I will show you. And Abraham obeyed. He took Isaac to the mountain, built the altar, put Isaac on it, the only son who God had promised. He raised the knife, and then the angel of the Lord stops him, and he says, Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your only son. Abraham sees a ram caught in the thicket. He offers the ram as a sacrifice instead. And James says that Abraham was justified by works in that moment. So the word justified is another source of interpretive tension in this passage. In, in Greek, the word for justified is the verb form of the noun righteousness. So justified is the verb form of righteousness. Someone who's been justified is someone who's been considered righteous or counted righteous or declared to be righteous. And here's the tension, is that Paul explicitly says in Romans 3 and Galatians 2, we are justified, counted righteous on the basis of faith apart from works. And then in verse 24 of our passage, James says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So is James in conflict with Paul? No. And here's why. Just, when we saw the word, just like when we saw the word saved in verse 24, and we had to ask a question, saved from what? When we see the word justified in the scripture, we have to ask this question. Justified by who? Justified by who? We're justified by God when we put our faith in Christ for eternal life. Abraham was justified by God when he believed God, faith, and God counted it to him as righteousness, justification. But who justifies us by our works? Other people? Who justified Abraham by his works? Who considered Abraham righteous on the basis of his works? Isaac, probably. I mean, after he got over the trauma of like nearly being offered as a sacrifice. <laughs> the servants, when they came back down the mountain and Isaac was still there. Sarah, when they all got home. And she heard the story. I mean, and then who else? Nations. Child sacrifice was incredibly common in the tribal the religions of this time. And so now Abraham was this living testament. The one true God doesn't demand that we sacrifice our children. He demands that we put faith in him. He demands our trust. In verse 23, Abraham was called a friend of God. And James's next example is radically different. Abraham was the patriarch. He's the father of the Jewish faith. James's readers are Christians who came out of Judaism. They knew Abraham. They had tremendous respect for Abraham. And James's next case study, though, is not a patriarch. She's a prostitute. Verse 25, in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. This is Joshua 2. Israelites have been roaming the desert for 40 years. Moses has died. Joshua has taken over as the leader of the nation. They've arrived at the promised land, and Joshua sends spies to go survey it and check it out and kind of get a lay of the land and see what's up. They arrive at Jericho. They get spotted, and they run and they hide in the house of Rahab, the prostitute. The king of Jericho gets word of this. He sends people to Rahab's house, says, turn them over. And she sends them away. She misdirects. She says, oh, the men were here, but they left. If you go quick, maybe you can find them. And she helps them escape. But before she does, she says this to Joshua's spies. I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea 
for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For listen, the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. That's Rahab's profession of faith. She had the faith inwardly. She heard about what God had done. She recognized in her heart that he was indeed God. And when she did that, the God whose deeds melted her heart in fear counted her righteous, the prostitute counted her righteous in his sight on the basis of her faith. But who counted Rahab righteous on the basis of her works? The spies? Joshua, once they went back and gave the report? The whole nation of Israel? Once the word started to make its way through the camp that the the harlot was the hero, God counts us righteous on the basis of faith. People count us righteous on the basis of our work. So there's a couple principles I want to point out based on these two examples, and then we'll, we'll be done. The first is that it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your past is. If you've put your faith In Jesus Christ, God looks at you, he slams the gavel of heaven, and he says, righteous, forgiven, case closed. Abraham was far from a perfect man. He believed God. God counted it to him as righteousness. Rahab made a living by degrading one of the most sacred things that we can do as human beings. She came to believe that God is God, and God said, Rahab is righteous. Works don't factor in. God declares us righteous on one criterion. That's the criterion of faith. Here's the second principle. When James talks about works in this passage, I don't think he means a lifestyle of morality. I'm not saying morality is not important. Okay, it is important. But I don't think that's what James means. Because these very specific moments that James chooses to use from Abraham's life and from Rahab's life, they come at a time when to make their faith public could come at tremendous cost to themselves. God didn't intervene, Abraham could lose his only son. If God didn't show up, Rahab could be found out, executed. So when James talks about works here, I don't think he has him, I think what, what he's trying to get at is those moments in life when to, like, to trust God and act in faith and obey him is incredibly costly. And I don't know what, what obedience to God could cost you in your life. I don't know what your situation is. I mean, it might cost you money. To be obedient to God might cost you a relationship to obey God. It might cost you comfort. It might cost you security. I don't know what obedience to God will cost you, but hear me really, really, really clearly this morning is that whatever obedience to God might cost you, disobedience will cost you far more. It will cost you far more. God can and he will forgive sin. Amen? But forgiven sin can still have consequences right here and right now in this life for us. And those consequences can be deadly. Everything that sin touches begins to die. Sin kills relationships. It destroys them. Just raise your hand if you've ever been mistreated by someone who called themselves a Christian. Anybody? Yeah. What was their faith worth to you in that moment? Anything at all? No. No. Worthless. Sin kills relationship. It deadens our fellowship with God. It clouds our ability to hear from him. It clouds our ability to see what he's doing. 
Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So purity and spiritual clarity are linked together. Sin impedes that. It's destructive to our souls. Sin can sear our conscience. It can damage our ability to even know right from wrong or good from evil or wise from unwise. And then lastly, sin leads to literal physical death. Sin leads to literal physical death. Remember that sin is the reason human beings die. That's clear from the beginning of the story in Genesis. Even Christians whose sins have been been forgiven will still suffer physical death. But it's not just that. We see clear examples in Scripture of God choosing to end people's physical lives as a direct result of their sin. Even Christians. And there's not really any getting around that, any way of getting around that. You, you may be spared from the second death, but like if you persist in, in unrepentant, just willful, deliberate, rampant sin, I mean, does God make any promises that he won't pull your card to keep you from hurting people or dishonoring him? All right, let's bring the band back up and pray and sing. That was a joke, not a very effective one. Here's J. Vernon McGee from his book on 1 John, I think that if a child of God goes on disgracing the Lord down here, the Lord will either set him aside or take him home by death. God doesn't mind doing that. I think he does it in many instances. Obedience to God can be costly, but disobedience is invariably far more costly. It is far more costly, not just for you, but for your neighbor as well. Luke 18, 29 through 30 Jesus says this, Truly I tell you, no one who's left home or spouse or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the life to come to eternal life. God takes full responsibility for the life that's fully devoted to him. God takes full responsibility for the life that's fully devoted to him. So when you obey God, and you leave the consequences to him, he rewards that obedience. And not only that, but when the people around you see it, they know that person has faith. That person trusts God. And that's what it means to be justified by works in the context of James 2. James closes this portion of the letter by simply summarizing. He says, verse 26, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, just flip that around into the positive sense. So, just as the body with the spirit is alive, just as the body with the spirit is active, just as the body with the spirit is animated and vibrant and operative and functioning and working, in the same way, faith with works, with obedience, that's faith that's alive. And that's James's message when you dig down past all of the interpretive controversy. So does James teach salvation by works? Yes, but not in the way you thought. Not in the way you thought. He's not talking about salvation from hell. He's talking about being saved from just the natural consequences of disobeying God in this life. So listen, like you want to face trials the right way in your life. You want to persevere and come out on the other side still standing, still trusting, still believing, and more mature than you were before, then you trust God and obey. 
even when it's scary, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it could be really costly. Because if you do, God rewards it. God rewards it, and you'll be spared from all kinds of consequences as a result. Now, as we, as we prepare to take communion together, I just I want us to remember, and this is really important, I, just, I was struck by this uh, last night as I was looking over this and thinking, I just want us to remember that, that Jesus himself was faced with the exact same predicament that we are. Do I obey God? Do I submit to the Father even though it will be costly? On the night he was betrayed, he went with his three closest disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, my soul is deeply grieved within me, even to the point of death. He knew exactly what was coming. He knew exactly what the cost of submitting to God was going to be. And he prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he obeyed. He obeyed. He submitted, and he drank the cup of God's wrath down to the very last drop. And the writer of Hebrews tells us he did it for the joy set before him. For the joy set before him. Jesus endured the cross and all of its shame on your behalf and on mine. And he was crushed to death by the weight of condemnation, and now alive again, he looks back on it, and he says, it was my joy. It was my joy to do it. And if you've put your faith in Christ's obedience on your behalf this morning, then I want to invite you just to come to the table and honor him by eating the bread, which symbolizes his body broken for you, and to drink the cup, which symbolizes his blood just poured out for you for the forgiveness of all your sin. We have two tables here in the front. We have two tables in the back, and, and Justin Christopher will be back there, and I think Brenda will be back there as well to, to pray with you if you'd like someone to pray with you this morning. Let me pray for all of us, and then we'll honor Christ together. Father, we come before you this morning, and we, we just acknowledge that you are righteous. You're righteous in all of your deeds. You're righteous in all of your judgments. You're perfect in all of your ways, and you demand perfection from us. You demand righteousness, and, and we couldn't achieve that on our own, so you sent your Son to be our substitute. Jesus, we celebrate you this morning. We honor your obedience, and because you gladly chose surrender, so will we. And so now help us, Holy Spirit, to put righteousness on display, not for our own glory or reputation, not in an effort to try and earn love or favor from God, but just as a sincere offering of gratitude and worship to God and just as a demonstration to the world of our faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.